If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians and the second chapter as we continue our study in uh, that book. Ephesians and the second chapter. And the significance of what Dan read in the book of Daniel in the second chapter, as you know, is the rock uh, that covers the earth is a reference to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that kingdom which is present now, that kingdom which is growing now, and that kingdom which will last forever. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Start reading and verse 14 of chapter 2 and read down to the end of the chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. I'd ask you please to go to prayer. Pray for me as I preach this text. Pray for yourselves also. As you sit in the proclamation of our God's word, let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, this text of Scripture informs us, at least in part, of the purpose of you working and binding the church as one throughout the world. It is your work, O God. And Father, we pray that as we hear these words read, as we hear these words preached, that you, by your grace, would awaken us, that you would quicken us, that you would cause your word, O God, uh, to penetrate our hearts and minds, to have a greater understanding of who you are and what you're doing, and as well as a greater understanding of the nature of the church. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a dear, dear friend. I grew up with him. Uh, I know Tim and Kathy know him. Some of you others may know him as well. His name is Larry Albert. And Larry uh, is an architect in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He is also a very brilliant architect. He worked with Frank Montague, Melinda's uncle, for several years until Frank finally went on to glory. And I was talking to Frank about Larry one time, and he said they're going to be writing books about him one day. He's respected for the work that he does. And I can't imagine how one would go about doing that. You have these magnificent buildings that are built, and it starts with an idea that is drawn on paper and then assembled bolt by bolt, board by board, 
inch by inch and foot by foot until finally you see the structure standing there. I was visiting with Larry one time and we went for a ride and he showed me a building that he did not design. And he said, what do you think this building is? Well, it looks like an office building. He drove me around to the back and back. Uh, you could see all these pipes sticking out of the top of this building. It was not an office building at all. It was a pathology lab. Larry's idea is that should be reflected in the building. So you drive by, you know this is a lab, not an office building. And I love the way that he does architecture. And again, what he does is absolutely a marvelous work. Here in the Bible, in the section of Ephesians, we see that God is an architect. God is building something. And you're a part of the structure that he's building if you're a Christian. He's building his church ever so slowly, progressing on, continuing on until the completion of it at the end of the ages. And as we live in our modern world and as we hear the things that are happening throughout our country and throughout the world, where there seems to be a very concentrated effort to dethrone Christ and to have a new morality that is not structured at all by Scripture, but rather by the imaginations of ungodly people, ungodly men. This text should be encouraging to us as God's people because we see here this morning that because God is building his church, Christ himself, person by person, as he calls them in to save them, because Christ is building his church, we can be confident that that church will come to completion, that the church will be victorious, and it will be one day that Christ rules without any hint of him not ruling. Three things this morning as we look at this text. Members of God's household are those who are redeemed by Christ. Second thing, members of God's household rest upon a solid, unshakable foundation. And the third thing is members of God's household are being erected into a dwelling place, being built up into a dwelling place for God himself. Well, then in the first place, members of God's household are all of those who are redeemed by Christ. He begins by addressing them as the saints. Well, what are saints? Listen to this. Saints are not super-duper holy people. Saints are not those that the Roman church has declared to be saints. Saints is simply another term for those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it means uh, they are holy. It means they have been set aside. It means that God owns them and has placed them aside for his own special purposes, taking them out of the world to be uniquely different from the world. Listen to this. If your life doesn't really reflect a relationship with Christ, there's no real repentance, there's no striving for godliness, it's very likely you're not a Christian. Because those who are in Christ demonstrate the fact that they are saints, not perfectly, but there will be a desire to please God. There will be a desire to be free from the entrapments of the world which call us away from a commitment to the Lord Jesus. That will be there. So these are saints. Second Corinthians six sixteen and 17 says this. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst to be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And I will welcome you here. 
the elect of God, the saved of God, being separate, being distinct from the rest of the world, as you read here from the rest of the non-believing world, unique as reflecting God's glory. And again, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by our brother Sosthenes uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to the sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints together with all of those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. So the saints are those who make up the church, not declared to be by the Roman church, not some special anointing that people have that makes them saints, but anybody that professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a true believer. Children are saints. If they're in Jesus, they're saints set apart to God for special possession. And as we read earlier in these texts, that all of those who are saints are made so by God's grace. What is the grace of God? You know, the definition is God's unmerited favor. When he looks upon those who do not deserve his mercy, do not deserve his kindness, do not deserve his grace, and he saves them. The rest, the reason being all because of God and his purposes and his love. And remind you of this. Everybody here this morning is either saved or lost. You're either trusting Christ for your salvation or you're not. There is no in-between. There is no neutral ground, so to speak. I would remind you of Hebrews and uh, the um, 10th chapter in verse 31 of the 10th chapter of Hebrews. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, the imagery here is those who do not fall into the hands of God as his children, as he holds us in his hands and it says in the scriptures, no one can pluck us out, but those who fall into the hands of God who is not pleased with them. Then it says here that it is a fearful thing to do so. And hear this. Apart from Jesus Christ, this would be you. If on that day you're not in Jesus, you will fall into the hands of an angry God according to what the Scriptures teach us. I'm not being negative. I'm being biblical. It's the clear teaching of the Word of God. To die apart from Christ is to die under God's condemnation and wrath. Apart from grace will be those like in Revelation 6. It says, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks and the mountains, calling up the mountains to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. For the wrath of the Lamb, the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? But those that are referred to here in the text in Ephesians are those who have been blessed by God's grace. And so if you're lucky enough to get it, I was waiting on people to look up. And luck's got nothing to do with it. Right? Nothing. It's God's unmerited favor. It's God's grace and his loving kindness that is poured out upon us. And notice he says this. Here we begin to think about the unity of the church. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In him. In Christ. That sums up the promise given to us in the book of Genesis. Pictured throughout the Old Testament. Accomplished in the New Testament. In him. So through the Lord Jesus Christ we have access to God. Whether you are uh, old, whether you are young, whether you are rich, whether you are poor, in him 
we have access to the one living and true God and fellowship with God. That should make you extremely pleased and grateful. Uh, we're studying knowing God in my Sunday school class. And one thing that Packer points out in that book is failure today to really grasp the majesty of God. He said that we read uh, Edwards and we read Whitfield and we read writers such as that. He says that we recognize we worship the same God, but it seems that they have a much fuller grasp of his majesty. If we had that grasp of his majesty, we would be absolutely in awe of his greatness and his grace shown to us in Christ that saved us from the wrath that is to come upon us in him. We have salvation. In him we have redemption. In him we have an abiding hope that will not be disappointed. You know, we go along in life and things are good so often. Uh, if you're married, you got a good marriage, you know, that's great. You got kids, they're healthy, that's very good. All these wonderful things that we have. And yet we become so inoculated, if you will, by these things. That we fail, I think, to remember that the day of reckoning is going to come and the time when we stand before Christ is going to come. And if we are failing to trust him and to honor him, it's going to be a very bleak day for you. But for those who do trust him and those who do love him and those who do honor him, we can still become sidetracked by giving in and failing to think, of the days to come in Christ. We were not born simply to, re- to be married and have children and enjoy this world. And I love those things. I-, I like being married. I got a great wife. I love my children. Praise God for them. Love my grandchildren. Praise God for them as well. But the reason that I was placed upon this earth, what is the chief in a man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? The enjoyment of God is not something we experience just here. Than today, the enjoyment of God is something that is forever. And so I was raised up in this life to bring glory to God and to spend eternity with him as I pass through this life. The greatest blessing you will ever receive in this world is your redemption, is your salvation. The greatest blessing you will ever receive is what Christ has done for you in his life and death and resurrection, and resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing his peace that passes all understanding. So in him we have redemption. Also we have access in one spirit, he says here. Notice what Paul is doing here. He brings in the Trinity. In one spirit. What does the spirit do? Well, Jesus in John chapter 3, talking to Nicodemus, let us know that the spirit is the one who regenerates us. The Spirit is the one who gives us life and grace whereby we come and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so it is. He is the one who brings us to salvation through his great working. But not only does he do that, the Spirit of God also enlightens our minds, gives us understanding of the Scriptures. And the Spirit of God comforts us in the days of sadness as we look to God, as we believe his word, as we trust in what God says about the grave, about trials, about difficulties and disappointments. Listen, it's easy to trust God when all things are going well, is it not? 
It is. It's easy to trust God when everything is wonderful. It's not so easy when we face trials in our lives, when we face difficulties in our lives. Remember, again, the great work that God has done, ours by grace, that he is still at work in us. Here, the work of the Spirit, whereby we are regenerated and whereby also we have um, understanding and comfort from the Scriptures as God himself comforts us. And then we are also permitted to come to God as our Father. What a great, great blessing that we can come to God as our Father. You know, if you had a good father when you were growing up, uh, you recognize something of what it is to know God as your Father, something of it. It falls far short, of course. Packer, in his book, I Want to Be a Christian, the Lord's Prayer, says, Our Father which art in heaven, Packer says this, If you had a bad father when you were growing up, if he wasn't loving and he wasn't kind, whether you could be comforted in the fact that you have a very loving father now that is in heaven, who is perfect in all of his ways, who always has your interest at heart, your best interest at heart, as he works and as he, in his providence, leads you along. So we read in the scripture, we cry, Abba, Father. A very close relationship that we have with God as our Father. One, this is used three times in the New Testament. One of them is when Christ prays it in the garden. Abba, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. So here, because of this great work that Christ has done, we are able to unite and worship God together and have the privilege of calling God our Father. You notice what Paul does here. He changes the pronoun from the second person singular, you, to the first person plural, we. And what he's doing now, the Gentiles are set apart. They were not a part of the covenant community. Christ has changed that. Now those who are you are now we. And why is God doing this? According to what the Bible teaches us, so that he may have a people of all nations to worship him. Does God want to be worshipped by people? Yes, he does. It says, and Jesus talked to the woman at the well, he desires such to worship him. I had a friend, that he, he wasn't a friend really. He was more of an acquaintance. Uh, he thought God was arrogant because he wanted people to worship him. I said, that's stupid. There's no other way to describe that. That's just dumb. Because what he was doing, he was reasoning from his perspective. If I wanted people to, to you know, to, to, you know to just think the world of me and you know, almost worship me, uh, he may even said to worship him. That's just nothing more than arrogance. But I say, you're not God. He deserves to be worshipped. He is the creator. He is the savior. He is the redeemer. And rightly are we to worship this God who desires to be worshipped. You know what does that say to us about when we come to the Lord's Day worship? How do we prepare to come into the presence of this great God that is our Father? Do we prepare throughout the days of the week as we spend time in prayer, as we think about this? Lord, please be with the pastor as he works on this sermon. Lord, please help him to understand what he's studying. Please help him to put it in a form that is comprehensible. And please open up my heart to be receptive to the scriptures, to be receptive to the word of God that is read and preached. Because I know I desperately need it. Desperately need it. You will, if you will, we all have a cancer. 
uh, we all are afflicted with a cancer is called sin. And there are times when it grows and does quite well uh, as it infiltrates and as it influences. And there's sometimes that we give in uh, to it. And we may even reach a point say we just are tired of trying. We don't want to try any longer. And one of the things that is helpful to us in dealing with that cancer of sin is coming to worship. Hearing God's word read. Hearing God's word preached. The primary means of grace is the proclamation of God's word. And so we should give ourselves to it and we come to worship on the Lord's day. We become prepared to do so. Not having been fighting, not having been holding grudges, not having been in any way uh, grumbling about God's providence. But recognizing who he is, recognizing what he's done for us in Christ, and recognizing he delights in our worship. What a wonderful thing. You can delight God. You ever think about that? You can be a delight to God. Do you want to be a delight to God? Hopefully. He's pleased. We should strive to be pleasing to him rather than displeasing to him. And so now the non-Jews have a new affiliation. It's further demonstrated by the unity. Negatively, he says to them, you are no longer strangers and aliens. To the Gentiles, no longer strangers and aliens. No longer ostracized from the covenant people of God. No longer cut off from God's promises. But rather, you are now a part of those who are no longer aliens, but a redeemed people. And they are fellow citizens, we read here in the text, members of the household of God. Charles Hodge said this. Listen to this. Christ did not die simply to open the way of access to God, but to actually introduce into his presence and us into his presence and favor. So that now, as we come into God's presence, he delights in us as his children. I've told you before, I'll tell you again. Packer says, adoption is a greater grace than justification. He said, because God could have justified us and left us in that state of justification and yet kept us not in his family. And yet he has adopted us. And I think the doctrine of adoption is so often overlooked by us that we fail to remember the great grace that is in and taught in that doctrine. And knowing God, there's a chapter called Sons of God. It's about adoption. I encourage you to read it. It's one of the best chapters in the book. Sons of God. That God is indeed, and in fact, my father and your father, if you are a believer. So Christ did not simply die to open the way of access to God, but actually introduce us into his presence and favor. The purpose of God, to unite a people as one throughout all the world, throughout all the ages, I think about this, and when Christ comes back again, every believer that has ever lived in the history of the world is going to be there. Raised to life from the dead by the power of God. Every Christian that's ever lived is going to be standing there, redeemed by the blood of Christ and a part of the redeemed who live forever. The second thing is that the members of God's household rest upon it a solid, unshakable foundation. Some of you may remember that song, Give Me That Old Time Religion. How many people have heard that? Yeah. Give me that old time religion. It was good enough for my daddy. It's good enough for me. Good enough for my mother. Good enough for my brother. It's good enough for me. Christianity is the old time religion. If there ever was one that's the old time religion, it is Christianity. 
We learn in verse 21 that Christianity is indeed the old-time religion because it is built upon the foundations of apostles and prophets. And we know the apostles. Uh, Paul was an apostle. These Christians that received this letter knew Paul. They knew he was an apostle. They knew that he was one who had been called to the work by Jesus. But the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church only in a secondary sense. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, listen to this. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They said, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how did Jesus respond to that? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, some of you may know what Petrine secession is. This is not teaching Petrine secession. Now, Peter was not the first pope of the church. Peter is not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, and Christ has always been the head of the church. And when he says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, he means Peter's profession, confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, flesh and blood not revealed. My Father revealed it to you, Peter. Because that knowledge is an, is an outworking of his grace and kindness to you, Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. There Christ. So the church is built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of the church. And he purchased the church by his own blood. Listen to what is written by uh, Luke in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. This should be something that every officer should give heed to this. Acts 20 and verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I'm going to read it again. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. You may say, indeed, I've been bought with a price. The price of my purchase with the death of God's Son. The shedding of his blood, the suffering of Christ for my sake, that's what it cost me to be a part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of the church. And yet the prophets of old taught about Christ. Joel Niederhood, who was, um, I think, Dutch Reformed, he used to have a radio program. And he made this statement one time. I was listening to him on television. He said this, the Reformed faith... It's believing the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's the Reformed faith. That's the Christian faith. Genesis to Revelation. And so the apostles, the prophets of old, go back to the oldest days of our religion. As God called them and as God assigned them to proclaim his word to the people in the Old Testament. And those prophets preached Christ. There was not a different way of salvation in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, there was a different message. It was about Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about the fact that Christ was preached in the Old Testament. 
And so that as they looked forward to the one who was to come, they understood that this was a special prophet of God. And Christ was not absent in the Old Testament. Dr. Robertson has a book out uh, talking about Christ in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, uh, David Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh's brother, does as well. And if you look at his bibliography, he used Dr. Robertson as he wrote that book on Christ in the Old Testament. So the prophets of old preached Christ, taught Christ. And certainly the apostles in the New Testament did as well. So the question is, what do you think about it? Does it matter to you at all? What do you think about it? Some of you have seen those puzzles, thousand-piece puzzles. My family used to work on them. They dump them out on the table. And, you know, you look for the edges first. You try to match the colors. You look at the picture and try to get it all put together. Sometimes it would sit for days, if not weeks, with no progress at all. It looked like the work had stopped. But then someone would walk by and they'd sit down at the table and work on it and put a few more pieces in. And somebody else would go by another two days later or whatnot and put a few pieces in until finally, after quite a time, it is finished. I think we had, when I was growing up, the painting of The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. And finally, the last piece is put together. You hate to tear it apart after all that. Some people frame them after all that work. That is sort of an illustration of what's happening in the church. At times, it seems the church is not progressing at all. As a matter of fact, at times, it seems the church is really stagnant. The church is never, ever stagnant. It may seem that it is to us, but the church is never, ever stagnant. It is all the time growing. You live in our country, and we may not see things progressing in the church here. We may not see people coming to faith, but there are other parts of the world where there are revivals that are taking place. Other parts of the world where you can see God's hand of grace working and bringing people in. And then we pray, we pray, we pray for our church, and God begins to work. The last thing, very quickly, is this, that members of God's household are erected into a dwelling place for God himself. God indwells us as a people. He indwells us and that we are a living organism and we are the church itself. Now, listen to Alistair Becky made a great deal about this. The church is not the building. Everybody knows that. The church is you. You're the church. You are the body of Christ. You are what God is, is dwelling in you personally. And it says here, Paul says, that he's building the church in order to have a dwelling place for himself. As the church finally comes to completion, as it is finished when the last person is brought in and Christ returns. So, so what? So what? You may think. So what? Well, for one thing, I think that it means that we should be very, very humble and grateful to God for including us as a part of that church. 
He didn't have to. Again and again, the reason for your salvation rests with God alone. Because he loved you. That's it. He was pleased to save you. He was pleased to send his son to die for you. On the cross of Calvary, he was pleased to do so. And the fact that we are in that company of the redeemed should cause us to be very grateful and strive to be very faithful as well. And then here's this question. Since that is God's purpose, what should be your attitude toward the church? What should be your attitude toward one another? That we in the first place would never do anything at all whatsoever to harm the church of Christ. By infighting, by holding grudges, whatever the case may happen to be, to see to it that we never, ever fall into that. We're sinners, and we have disagreements, but we can't nurse them as a mother nurses a child to see him grow and become strong. You have to leave those behind. You know, you, you, you see why again and again the Bible tells us to love one another, because our tendency is not to. Our tendency is to love ourselves first. Our tendency is to want to have our own way. And yet we recognize that God is at work in our midst. God's building his church here in this little place in the corner of the world. He's building his church. And our responsibility is, again, to see that as healthy as it possibly can be. So gratitude that we are part of the church. Laboring to see that it is as healthy as it possibly can be. And an involvement in it to say this, my service is not done. I have work to do. We have things coming up. You know, the, the fifth Sunday evening service, for example. What can you do to help with that? Do you see something in the church that needs to be fixed? That needs to be started? Don't complain about it. Get to work. As a member of the body of Christ, get to work. What can you do here in this church? To make it stronger. To make it healthier. Complaining never helped anything. But work does. By God's grace, let's be committed to do that. As we labor, recognizing God is building us up into a dwelling place for himself. Let's pray.